This episode is sponsored by independent Swiss luxury watchmaker Ulysse Nardon. Ulysse Nardon has continuously reset the boundaries of watch engineering and design thanks to its long-established technical excellence and its unconventional approach to watchmaking. To find out more, visit ulysse-nardon.com. That's U-L-Y-S-S-E-N-A-R-D-I-N.com. Ulysse Nardon. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Watch resale has continued to grow as a formidable chunk of the entire watch market, which is also booming. New Swiss watches are a $53 billion market, while the pre-owned watch market is worth nearly half that, at about $24 billion. However, the plunging price tags and secondhand luxury watches marks a sharp reversal of the pandemic heyday, when the likes of Rolex and Audemars Piguet saw demand outstripping supply. Appetite for the pre-owned versions of the watches sent their prices soaring in early 2022, led by sales to millennials and Gen Z customers who were comfortable buying pre-owned items online. At the time, people confined to their homes and flush with savings turned to luxury spending, helping high-end watch, bag, and apparel makers in the process. Online marketplaces for luxury watches made access to the watch market easier, while the hype around pre-owned watches helped prop up demand, sometimes even more than their first-hand counterparts. My guest on the luxury item is Eugene Tutunikov, founder and CEO of Swiss Watch Expo, one of the leading retailers of pre-owned luxury watches in the U.S. and worldwide. Eugene joined the Atlanta-based family-owned business in 2016 after spending 10 years as a trader on Wall Street. Eugene has since transformed the mom-and-pop operation into a top player in the pre-owned luxury watch market today. Welcome to the luxury item, Eugene. Hey, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on. So I want to kick things off uh, by going back a little bit before you join your family business. You know, it's a great story. You're part of a family of refugees from Ukraine that left for the United States in the late 1980s to pursue the American dream. Can you talk about your family's journey here to the United States and how they got into the watch business? And when they realized that the pre-owned luxury watch watches were going to be a big business. Sure. Uh, so the story goes back to 89. As you mentioned, we were born in Ukraine. It was Soviet era Ukraine. And in the fall of 89, we left as refugees. And what's what's um, what's very interesting about the story is basically the Soviet Union were not letting Jewish refugees out for many years. They finally right. opened the doors. They said you could leave, but you can't take anything with you. So we left with a few hundred dollars uh, in our name. I was six years old. My parents were 26 when we arrived and we settled in the Philadelphia area. And it was a very powerful experience for me as a child. We grew up around the community of all Eastern European refugee immigrants to the States Everybody was on welfare the first few years. Um, I remember going to the supermarket with my grandma when I was six years old or seven years old and, and asking her, why does our money look different than other people's money? Because we were on welfare and we were doing grocery shopping using food stamps, which were these like gigantic, colorful looking coupons, which was, right. I don't know why they made them stand out so much, but they made yeah, them stand, right. out a, stand out a lot. And what was inspirational about that experience for me is within 
five to seven years, my parents and all their friends were in the suburbs with a house, with a Lexus or Mercedes. These are all people that came to America without knowing English, restarting their lives. So to me, it really cemented the fact that the American dream really is alive and well, and it was the right decision for me and, me and my family to move to the States. We grew up very proud to be Americans. We grew up very, we would always toast to America on our anniversary of coming to America. We still do that. So it was very, very much the, the American dream was alive with us in our whole community growing up. And, uh, you know, ever since I was a, a little kid, my, um, especially my grandparents who came over with us, they would always say like, we all left our lives. I'm an only child. We all, we all left our lives so you could have a better future. So it's like hearing that since you were six or seven years old kind of puts a little pressure on you. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up yeah, studying really, really well in school. I graduated number two out of a thousand kids. I got uh, some scholarships and ended up going to NYU to study finance, economics, and math. And from there, uh, I graduated three and a half years and I went to work on Wall Street and saw the big um, investment banks as a derivatives, derivatives trader. My mother at the time was working as a computer programmer and she got together with my stepfather who was already living in Atlanta. We grew up in Philadelphia and I was living in New York and he was a Rolex trained master watchmaker. And he was running a service center in Atlanta, uh, servicing Rolex watches. Um, when she moved to Atlanta uh, in 2008, uh, she stopped being a programmer and they started this business where um, aside from his full-time job, they would buy watches, he'd fix them up and she would sell them on eBay. So that is how the initial versions of Swiss Watch Expo came to be. Um, in 2009, they launched a, a rudimentary website in 2000, they also opened up a, a local shop doing both jewelry and watches in Atlanta at the time. I invested in the business uh, to help them purchase some inventory. Um, at, you know, as I was working, I was in my mid-20s working in New York as a trader still. At the time, I really never thought I would be involved. Uh, and they would tell me stories. And, you know, I was with them for all the successes and challenges in the early years because we were talking all the time. And they would tell me stories of how, you know, they, somebody from Florida would fly in to buy a watch or they shipped the watch to Texas. And, you know, as the years went on, I was like, well, if they can, they can sell one or two watches a day, you know, what would it take to be a much larger business? Um, I felt that the consumer behavior was really shifting online for luxury goods, uh, for pre-owned luxury goods. My parents asked me to join for a few years and finally in, in the summer of 2016, I made the move to Atlanta. Uh, at the time, they had a very local, successful local mom and pop shop. And my goal was to really cement our online reputation nationally and figure out how to build a real e-commerce powerhouse uh, for the business, how to scale the operations, uh, how to you know put more data around what we're doing. Um, and it, it was kind of off to the races. We we almost doubled that first year that I came on board, and it was rapid growth afterwards. Uh, and it's been it's been an extremely extremely fun ride. What was the pre-owned luxury watch market like at that time? When I when I moved in 2016, it was still very much a pure collector's market, and it was it was consumers that were not 
super knowledgeable or super uh, already have a number of pieces at home, they would never even consider buying pre-owned. And even those that did, most of them would not consider buying pre-owned. Right. There was a there was it was considered there was a lot very little transparency still in the market. Um, there was a very little trust from consumers and purchasing in the market. So you, you really have to know what you're doing. And most of the shopping was being done on marketplaces such as eBay. And, and this was around the time that Chrono 24 was starting to take off as well. Did you see an opportunity then too, as far as transparency? Yes. So, you know, we, we kind of made our business model all about, being very transparent. So we we own all of our inventory, we photograph it in-house. Um, we're very transparent in communication. There's no negotiation on when we're selling the watch or buying the watch or the price is the price we know it's gonna be fair. We always wanna provide a lot of value, but we don't want consumers thinking that, hey, if they negotiate a little harder, maybe they, they would have saved an extra few hundred dollars. So we wanna be always very upfront transparent and create a lot of trust to the consumer um that's part of the value equation that we're, we're providing the customers obviously a lot of other companies grew and, and jumped on board the bandwagon here a number of large competitors are now playing in the online pre-owned luxury watch marketplace scene since you launched you know bob's watches chrono 24 watchbox etc how does swiss watch expo uniquely position itself among these platforms we're not a marketplace. We have one of the biggest collections of inventory in the country, all under one roof. We have about 3,000 watches. Uh, we do all the authentication, refurbishment um, in-house. When you talk to our salespeople, you're most likely going to be on a on a video call, whether you're in California, uh, Canada, or London with our sales team as you're discussing the watches or going to be holding the watches in their hand. Um so, so we have all the inventory, we're all, we're fully integrated. And so when you say marketplaces, so we, we don't consider ourselves a marketplace because everything we sell, we own marketplaces are usually, uh, there's sellers on there in the marketplace does the marketing and the, you know, collection of payments and so forth, right. like a Chrono 24, which I think that experience are, in my view, our experience is a stronger one for the consumer, um, when a consumer goes in a marketplace, it creates, it, it, there's a lot of work for them. They don't know, you know, what's a good value. They, they're dealing with multiple sellers on the marketplace. Some sellers might have really good knowledge and good good service. Some, some sellers might not. They don't know if the watch has been authenticated yet, hasn't been serviced. There are many sellers on the marketplaces that will list watches they don't even have in the hopes they get an order and then they try to fulfill it. And a lot of times it's, orders get canceled. Um, the pricing tends to be all over the place. Uh, the, the quality, especially if you're buying pre-owned is not consistent in the marketplace. So our goal is to eliminate the most of that for a consumer. So since we do all the service and refurbishment in-house and we really pride ourselves in you know, getting all of our watches as close to new condition as possible before we sell it. And if you read our reviews online, which we have, we've, had, we've got thousands everywhere, you'll see a lot of reviews saying like, hey, they shipped me a used watch. They said it was 10 years old, but they, I think they gave me a new one by accident because they the customer gets it and they can't even tell it's a pre-owned watch. They think it's a new watch, uh, even though it's a 10 or 15 year old watch. And in a marketplace, you can't really get that consistent product quality 
the pricing is not always fair because it's all over the place depending on the seller. Um, you don't get the same customer service experience that you would with us because our sales team is expertly trained and they're much more equipped to talk about the watch when they're holding it in their hands and they're discussing it with you versus somebody that's in a cubicle that never actually held the watch in their hands, period, that are, they're trying to talk to you about it. Um, so we we have a very consistent experience that a marketplace, that we believe a marketplace, a pure marketplace cannot provide. Um, as far as Watchbox and Bob's Watches, they're certainly uh, competitor competitors of ours. I think they have great businesses. We, uh, you know, we, 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 we're, I consider those, those two names and us as the top three in the country right now for online pre-owned watch sales. And we're all kind of growing as the market keeps growing and taking market share, I think, from the smaller players. Um, you know, Bob's Watches is typically mostly Rolex from what I understand. You know, when I look in their website, they typically carry 700 to 1,000 uh, watches. We typically have 3,000 in inventory, so we have a very wide selection. And uh, Watchbox is a phenomenal platform. I know they've grown a good team and uh, raised a lot of money to to build that business. Their, their main strength is... Um, they're really, really strong in that ultra premium market, 100,000 and up, which is not really a space that we, we play in much. That's not really something that we're tackling. So can I assume that the biggest share of watches you have are from the holy trinity of Swiss watches, Audemars Piguet, Rolex, and Patek Philippe? That's correct. About 55% of our sales are coming from those brands. And where are the rest from? Uh, Cartier, Omega, Breitling, and uh, a number of smaller brands as well. You said in an interview back in May 2023 that 2022 Swiss Watch Expo sales reached $80 million, up 30% over the previous year, and you're expecting sales of $100 million within two years. So with the slowdown that has hit the high-end goods market and spread into the world of luxury timepieces, do you think you'll still be able to hit that number? I think we'll certainly hit that number. I I think it's still possible next year. This year has definitely been a much more challenging year for the market. Uh, we're about flat to last year. And we're actually, we're, we're up on unit volume, slightly down on, on dollar volume. Um, it's, it's interesting that everybody kind of said if there's a slowdown, the ultra wealthy will never stop spending because they're still wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, in our case, we've actually seen a bigger slowdown in watches over over forty thousand than we have seen in watches say under fifteen thousand, uh, because a lot of the consumers that were buying watches over forty or fifty thousand from us, they have a very big collection of watches at home, you know, ten, fifteen, sometimes thirty pieces. And they were not necessarily looking to add another piece to their collection. A lot of them actually became net sellers in the last year to us. Uh, whereas somebody buying five or $10,000 watch, it's very often an aspirational purchase they've been thinking about for years. It might be their first, first or second luxury watch purchase. And, you know, as long as they're still employed and, you know, they're, they're probably celebrating some occasion, they're going to go ahead with that purchase. So, that's kind of driven the fact that we're seeing our unit volume up this year from last year, but our dollar volume is actually slightly down. And you know more than anybody that the pandemic really gave the luxury watch market its moment. 
growth for luxury watch resale platforms accelerated after the pandemic as a surge of interest in tangible assets like timepieces, pent up demand and savings, particularly among the wealthy and a new breed of investors and flippers drove demand and secondary market prices for new and used unicorn watches to record highs. What did you learn from a business perspective about traveling at a Mach 2 speed in the stratosphere, all of a sudden hitting the brakes? It was interesting to see. It was a combination, I think, of people sitting at home. They're not able to travel and eat out and spend money on the luxuries that they're used to spending money. A lot of uh, their savings were growing at the same time. Interest rates were zero, so they weren't really earning anything on their savings. So a lot of consumers went and started shopping online for luxury goods, not just watches, but watches definitely the demand skyrocketed at the same time, there was uh, some slowdown in production from the manufacturers. So as demand picked up, supply went down and there was this perfect storm where <laughs> it seemed like a scramble from consumers to, to get their hands on any luxury watch, which was of yeah. course fa fantastic for business. Right. Um, he, you know, the, we're, we're very, um, because we started this business and it's a bootstrap company and we started with very little and we've grown it to a very sizable business. We're very good at operators and very, very good at, you know, how we purchase inventory, how we manage our expenses. And, you know, I saw a lot of competitors either start hiring people in a mania as prices went up and they went from, you know, 20, 30 employees to 70, 80 employees within a span of two years um, or, you know, start really stocking only the hot watches where, you know, we kind of, we, we took that opportunity to concentrate on a lot of watches that we, they're not as volatile in price as a Royal Oak or, or, or a new Daytona might be. So we were really focusing uh, a lot on watches in the, you know, from 1995 to 2015 era that became the bulk of our inventory at the time. And uh, really inventory that we felt much more comfortable carrying that would not have these wild price swings as a business. And I think that's really helped us out because we didn't have to take the hits that I think a lot of our competitors had to take take over the last 12 months as some of the hottest watches came down in price, but a lot of what we carried did not. And the strong pandemic era surge in pricing for the most hype pre-owned Rolex and Patek Philippe models have also started to wane. The Bloomberg subdial watch index fell again for the month of November, down like 3% from the prior month and 10% from a year ago, a new two-year low. So what's driving this growing downward pressure in the market? Uh, I think with interest rates uh, going up this year, I think there's now, like I mentioned, a lot of the money that went into watches was a function of people were looking at their bank accounts, they had cash sitting there, earning zero, and they didn't know where else to spend it. And there's there was a, there wasn't a better place than investing it in something nice on their wrist that they're going to enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as you know, interest rates up a lot this year. It, it created a lot of option optionality for people with that kind of savings or where they want to spend it. So it shifted some demand away from the pre-owned luxury watch market. Now with the stock market back up and interest rates no longer heading higher, it seems like they're down the last months or so. 
good amount and there's expectations of cuts in interest rates next year. I think the last report is expecting five or six interest rate cuts next year. We're, we're actually seeing a really nice pickup of demand this holiday season. So we're, we're trending at about 15% growth for November and December, which I'm really happy about. This is compared to last year, compared to last year. So the way, the way I see it, it's a very, very large market and we can continue growing no matter what happens. Um, McKinsey, I think, estimates the pre-owned market to be 26 billion globally. Yeah, right. Um, you know, most of our business is in the U.S. So even within the U.S., if it's you know a third of that, uh, that leaves us much plenty of plenty of room to grow as well as our top competitors. Um, I think you'll see a lot of the smaller players that got into the business in the mania thinking they could make a quick buck. Uh, soon exiting the space and also consumers are getting smarter and there's uh, they're estimating about 40 million uh, fake watches being produced a year mm. and being sold and we have this unique capability to authenticate service and open up every watch we have an 11 person watchmaking department right now that does that work our top competitors are able to do similar similar work the smaller guys cannot and I, you know the, and consumers are getting smarter they're only going to go to the top players and and not really go to the local jeweler that might have one or two watches and has no idea you know if, what's inside them we'll be right back after a quick break with more of my conversation with Eugene Tutunikov a pioneer in innovative technologies and the use of high-tech materials such as silicium Ulysse Nardin is one of the few integrated watch manufacturers with the expertise to produce its own high-precision components and movements. In 2001, the brand changed the face of watchmaking by launching the Freak. Freak led a counter-revolution to traditional watchmaking and reshaped the art of horology. Today, Ulysse Nardin remains devoted to its quest for watchmaking perfection through four collections, Freak, Blast, Diver, and Marine. We're back with more from Eugene Tutunikov. Last year, Rolex decided to certify its pre-owned timepieces for resale through its authorized dealer network. It's believed that watches that have the official stamp from Rolex currently command a 25% higher price on average across the portfolio. Online resellers like Swiss Watch Expo and others are ineligible for the program. Has the Rolex certified pre-owned program negatively impacted the demand for Rolexes on your platform? It has not impacted us negatively. Like you mentioned, uh, I look at the prices and we're typically seeing prices between 15 and 20%, sometimes as high as 25%, as you mentioned, compared to where we're selling for the certified pre-owned from Rolex. Um, our customers, and we get a lot of referral business and re repeat business is a big part of it. They, they already trust us. But again, I think that is actually really, really good for the pre-owned business you'd be surprised how many people are still hesitant to buy a pre-owned watch. Um, or so, you know, I had a friend recently, uh, they were they were shopping for his wife and his wife was just, I, I don't want to wear a pre-owned watch. I'm uncomfortable buying something pre-owned. I only want something new. Yeah, the stigma. And I think the stigma around it, exactly. And I think with Rolex putting their marketing and their stamp of approval on the pre-owned market as a whole is going to be lifting all boats. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, like I mentioned, we have a stellar reputation, you know, every day we get new reviews, we get referral business. So people know that we are 
our watchmaking department is absolutely obsessive about the quality that comes out from them. So nobody questions our ability to authenticate, service, or refurbish these watches. Uh, so we have not seen a hit from the business. If anything, I think it's helped our Rolex business this year. Um, but uh, it's just, I think you'll see, you'll see a consolidation in the space in the coming years where the top five, six players really become bigger and bigger. And anybody that was, you know, 10 to 20 is going to become smaller and smaller. We know an investment in a luxury watch is much less risky than the stock market. It's really closer to an investment in raw materials like gold or other precious metals. In fact, luxury watches are typically made from those precious metals. Do you think most of your customers think about their luxury watch purchases as sound investment pieces or do they just want to have a status symbol on their arms or high-end fashion accessories at a good value? I don't think our customers are mostly considering it an investment piece. They do appreciate the fact that they hold their value and they might appreciate it. The customers in the, in the past, you know, go back 15 plus years, you were really buying a luxury watch with the intent to keep it for life. Um, uh, lately, the, the, the most recent statistics, 60% uh, uh, of pre-owned luxury watches are being purchased by consumers under 40 years old. And their mentality is very different. They're not buying it for life. They're really buying it to enjoy it. And when they're ready to, to sell it or trade it in for something else that they want to wear instead, they're, they're quickly moving to do that. So the mentality around it changed and the fact that there's a lot more transparency and liquidity in the market has made it easier for them to do that. So they appreciate that they hold that the watches hold their value, but they're not buying it purely for investment purposes. And, you know, I, I, I personally have a little bit of a problem with the media when they constantly talk about how great an investment luxury watches are. And some, some of them are great investments, but by and large, I still feel consumers and our clients should be buying a watch that are going to, enjoy wearing they're going to appreciate the craftsmanship and have some kind of special connection with the timepiece um you know one, one thing that the from an investment perspective that all these articles failed to mention and i almost find it misleading is you know there's a lot of uh, there's still some transaction costs so if you're buying a watch you're paying sales tax so you're paying between five and nine percent sales tax depending on the state that you live in um, you know, if you then go back to sell a watch to somebody like us, then you're, you know, you're, you know, there's some, you know, we, we need to buy that watch. We need to service it, refurbish it, authenticate it. So, you know, that's, that, that, that's cost you between 10 and 15%, depending on the model as well. So the watch has to appreciate a good amount just for you to get the money back, uh, which most of them do. And they usually keep up or outpace in inflation, but I wouldn't recommend to most of our clients to buy watches purely from an investment purpose. Um, I want them to buy it, enjoy it. And if they want to ever sell it, uh, be able to trade it in uh, for something else and get a very good price for it. And in many cases, they might get more, but in some cases they might get less. And now we're seeing these new consumer segments, including young people, women, and consumers outside of the U.S. and Europe two largest watch markets for most of the 20th century are leading the massive upswing in luxury watch sales. Are a lot of your customers first-time luxury watch buyers? A lot of our customers 
our first-time luxury watch buyers, even more of our customers are first-time pre-owned luxury watch buyers. Um, you know, the, what's happened the last few years, and this is kind of what the problem that we're solving is, a lot of your customers are going to the authorized dealer. They have very, very little inventory in stock. They're getting some kind of nod and wink to maybe buy some jewelry or a watch they're not interested in buying before they could get the watch that they're actually interested in buying. Um, usually they're going there, they're not even able to buy something when they go there. So then they go online, they don't know who to trust, and then they they find us and they read the reviews and uh, maybe ask around about us and realize they don't stellar reputation. So there's a lot of customers that are initially looking to potentially buy a new watch and then ending up in the pre-owned watch market. So a lot of our customers, it is their first time buying pre-owned. And we get these emails saying, I'm never going back to the AD again. It's been a great experience. I saved money. You know, in many cases, consumers can still save money from retail when they're buying from us. You guys have an amazing selection of thousands of watches. And I, I bought the watch and I was wearing it for dinner the next day. And I'm in California and you're in Atlanta. So why would I uh, show up to the local mall to see four watches out of, you know, in the showcase and maybe not, not the ones I want to buy? So... We're really converting people to the pre-owned watch market. I think once they enter it, they typically stay with stay within the pre-owned watch market. An interest in Swiss luxury watches has been driven by an increasingly close relationship with the culture at large, with associations with musicians, football stars, comic book franchises, and video games, all driving visibility among younger, more diverse clients. And as younger, more global, and more opinionated audiences build watch communities of their own. How is Swiss Watch Expo keeping these audiences engaged? We, we've seen a lot of local groups, local collectors pop up and they have their own online channels, either through Facebook or Instagram and a lot of meetups. Um, we support them. We, we welcome them in. Um, we're not actively participating partly because it's, we're, we're having trouble still finding the, the staff that we need. We're about 33 people full-time right now. We're trying to hire another five to 10 people within the next nine months, uh, because we're so busy. So we're, while we're not building that community, we're, they, they're, they're sharing information within that community. And then when they're ready to buy or sell our watch or try, come in and try a watch, they usually come and engage with us. Uh, so that's, it's, it's not what I would love the scenario to be. I'd love to, for us to be more engaged in that. We're just currently don't have the staff um, and the time to be able to do that, unfortunately, but that's something in the future. I think we should do more of. And the rise in popularity of luxury watches in the industry's limited production capacity has also brought more attention to smaller independent brands and models, especially those seen as high value, unique, you know, or even hard to find. Have you been finding more interest on your platform for these smaller artisanal brands? Uh, I'm glad and I, I love to see the smaller independent watchmakers do well and the creativity and innovation coming out of the, out of the independence. Uh, we as a business have really focused on the major brands. Uh, part of it is it's really hard to tell which independents are going to survive for the long haul and succeed. And one of the things we want to be able to offer our customers, if you buy a watch today and you come back in five years to sell it, 
you're going to give a really good and fair price when you sell it. And unfortunately, with the pendants, ones that are hot right now and really popular would be not popular in five or eight years. And we would have a tough time being able to uh, take that watch back on trade or uh, buy it back at a at a fair price compared to where the consumer bought it. So we were, we're, we're really trying to stick with um, the brands with the longest history, the tried and true brands, the ones that uh, we know are going to be around for many, many years, just because it will make that that circular transaction for our customers much easier. And one of the offshoots, if you will, that have been stemming from this luxury watch craze, you know, I could say 2023 can certainly be labeled the year of the blockbuster watch collaboration John Mayer's G-Shock curation or Audemars Piguet's recent partnership with Travis Scott. The watch world has embraced linking and building in 2023 like never before. Bringing together two unique partners benefits both parties as they both have an opportunity to reach each other's audiences. And of course, every collaboration product aspires to be a cultural movement that is unforgettable. Why have we been seeing more watch collaborations than ever before, even in the last few years? I think it's it's just it's great marketing by the watch brands and I think each collaboration kind of has its own context context to it so it's not the same rule for all of them. Uh, the AP Travis Scott collaboration you just mentioned I think that that was announced just two or three weeks ago and I think it's really neat. It's a you know Royal Oak under strap. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got some really unique design elements to it, um, but it's really I think it's a way for the brands to make their way into mainstream media and to reach a consumer that they're not reaching otherwise and appeal to a new audience. So to me, it's just brilliant marketing. And, you know, it's bringing in new values to the product that come from the collaboration that might not be a part of the brand brand's history. Um, and I think it's going to continue. I think the brands just need to be careful not to overdo it because you don't want the brand to just be associated with collaborations and not from the long history and reputation that they have built. I don't think, I don't feel they are overdoing it. So I I welcome to see more of it going forward, but I think it's, it's, it's brilliant marketing on their part. One of the biggest concerns in the secondhand luxury watch space has always been the menace of counterfeits, which represents a $5 billion problem. What kind of measures does Swiss watch expo implement to ascertain with certainty that a watch is authentic? So, like I mentioned, we are we are fundamentally my you know my stepfather is a is a master watchmaker, and him and my mother started the business. So we were always a watchmaking driven organization. We now have an eleven person department. Every watch that we buy is opened up. Every part is authenticated. We do all the service and repairs in house. Uh, we have a separate team that it goes through for polishing and refinishing and we photograph all the inventory in-house so when you buy a watch online you need to ensure who you're buying it from a they're holding the watch and they have the watch and b has went through such a meticulous authentication process there are very few companies in the country that can do it at our scale and we're doing it on hundreds of watches a week Um, you know we've bought and sold over fifty thousand watches over the years uh, to retail customers, and we've never had an issue with authenticity. Um, so we're very, very, very careful. I think it's part of what's led to our success as a business. Consumers realize there's a lot of fakes, 
floating around. So they're only going to the trusted places. So that's us, our top competitors, and obviously the brands themselves if they have a pre-owned program. So that's that's where all, I think, all the buying and selling is going to be in the next five, 10 years. So we touched upon this earlier. Morgan Stanley estimates that the pre-owned luxury watch market will grow $35 billion by 2026 from $24 billion today. What will be the key drivers to get to that number? The key drivers, I think a lot of a lot of that growth is there's um, I believe over a hundred billion or hundreds of billions of watches and people's coffers right now at home pre-owned watches. And like I mentioned, there's a big change in consumer behavior where people are much more likely to buy a watch and then sell it or trade it in for another watch within a two-year period than they were in the past where they were buying it for life. So you're just seeing the current pool of watches is not really necessarily growing as quickly, but the uh, how quickly it changes hands has been going up significantly over the past few years. Um, and, you know, consumers are just becoming more and more comfortable buying pre-owned luxury goods, whether it's watches or handbags or jewelry. Uh, they're much more comfortable shopping online, which has been the growth driver of the pre-owned watch space. Um, and, you know, there's just been a lot more transparency and trusted players like us in the market. So consumers are much more comfortable, die, you know, entering the pre-owned market that, that have never shopped pre-owned before. So what does the next 10-year roadmap look like for Swiss Watch Expo? In, in the near term, we are uh, you know, we we've grown so quickly the last five six years, and we're this year was a lot about building and investing in infrastructure and team, and we're really building an operation that's going to be able to scale and handle uh, volumes that are two three times larger than what we're doing right now. Um, our our demand for our product really feels insatiable. Uh, if we were able to process, authenticate, and, you know, get 25% more watches on our site next year. I'm confident our growth and sales will be a minimum of 25%, but we need to scale our whole process and team to be able to handle that. So a lot of that is just investing in technology team, giving our team the right tools that they need to be more efficient. That's in the near term. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of exciting things that I'm thinking about, um, uh, you know, long term, uh, I know Apple just announced uh, a, a high-end UVR headset that's going to hit the shelves in January. Well, mm -hmm. you know, our sales team currently does a lot of selling on FaceTime uh, in two, three years. I'd love to see them se selling over a VR headset where the consumer can have a very immersive experience as if they're walking through our showroom and talking to our salesperson live. I don't think that technology is there yet, but we'll be there in five years. I think so. And I'd like to be, you know, an early adopter of it. Um, there's a lot of other things that we're, we're doing, including how we're using big data, um, how we're going to be using AI tools uh, in the future to spot for fakes, even before they, they hit, um, it, before, even before the watch comes in, we'll be able to scan images and AI tools will tell us which ones are likely to be fake or not. There's a lot of, innovative technology that we're going to be utilizing in the future that will make the business more efficient, which only leads to uh, better prices to consumers. The so more efficient we can make the business, the better the consumer experience will be. 
So what do you think your biggest challenge is going to be in getting to that, uh, that goal that you want? The biggest challenge I think is building out the systems that we need right now. It's still very, I would say micromanaged and high touched business throughout the organization, which you know, micromanaging kind of sounds like a dirty word, but it's actually has been really good for us because it's enabled us to have a very good consumer experience, a very controlled quality of the product. Um, so the trick is how do we go from that process, which is very controlled, and me and my, my family and uh, the other leadership in the company, we're very much hands-on in every part of the business um, versus when we go three, four X, we need more systems and technology to kind of take over from manual aspects of that process. But how do we do that without losing any quality um, along the way of everything that we're doing? So I think that is the biggest challenge and it's a, it's kind of a tight little balancing act. Um, so that's, that, 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 that's the part that kind of keeps me up at night. How do we go through that transformation effectively? So Eugene, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one single luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service. So you can call somebody to get you off that island. It's just you on this massive deserted island with nobody around. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? I'd say it would be the latest Kindle preloaded with a thousand bestsellers from all different categories. And I guess a solar charger, but uh, <laughs> big, big believer that a uh, continuous learning is a, is, is what creates a happy life. I'm always trying to learn new things. Um, and if you're in a deserted Island without any human interaction, I think that would be, that much more important to mental happiness. Um, so I think that would be my one item. Eugene Tutunikov, CEO and founder of Swiss Watch Expo. Thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate you having me and uh, happy to chat anytime. That's it for this episode of the luxury item podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.